1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hello,
2: I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Sam Bankman-Fried in court.
3: SBF is facing seven charges, including money laundering and fraud. This
1: is a massive case. Many of the things that went wrong with FTX are symptomatic of the crypto industry. On a regulatory side, there is definitely the need to act.
2: Tech Bro on trial. How the fate of Sam Bankman-Fried could change the face of crypto. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... The spark that shook Quebec. Are you willing to die
0: for the cause? A
2: graphic novel lays out the early days of the FLQ. Shopping for
4: doctors. We were all pleasantly surprised with the reception. Small
2: towns cast a wide
1: net to find doctors. And when tenants won't pay. They're withholding rent to make demands on landlords. How the housing crisis sparked a
2: new era of tenant activism. All today on day six, the rent is too damn high edition.
5: I think it's fair to say that by any anyone's lights, this is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history.
2: Wow. I mean, when you put it that way. This week, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried kicked off in New York. Bankman-Fried was the co-founder and CEO of Futures Exchange, better known as FTX. FTX was a cryptocurrency exchange that imploded last year after reports circulated that it had engaged in some questionable use of funds.
5: Bankman-Fried and his co-conspirators stole billions of dollars from FTX customers. He used that money for his personal benefit, including to make personal investments and to cover expenses and debts of his hedge fund, Alameda Research.
2: Three former executives who worked with Sam Bankman-Fried have already pled guilty to charges against them. They've agreed to testify for the prosecution. That includes Caroline Ellison, former CEO of FTX's sister company, Alameda Research, And she was also, at times, romantically involved with Bankman-Fried. She said she knew what was
6: happening was wrong and that she was in agreement as well with Sam Bankman-Fried to not publicly disclose that Alameda was then going on to loan billions of dollars to FTX executives.
2: All of this is happening against the backdrop of the complex and volatile world of crypto trading. Peter Armstrong is senior business reporter for CBC News. He's here to get us up to speed on what we need to know to follow the trial. Peter,
5: Hello, welcome back. Look at us. Good to see you. <laughs> nice to see you.
2: What is Sam Bankman-Fried accused of having done?
5: So, I, I mean, it's, it's really easy to get caught in the weeds of this because there are a ton of weeds. But if you just zoom out and be like, what actually happened here? The story is really simple. The story is that this guy ran an investment firm, right? FTX was just an exchange where you Mm -hmm. could buy and sell crypto and you'd give him your money to buy and sell crypto. And he took that money and gave it to a research wing of his other company that spent it on stuff that it wasn't – well, that it wasn't intended to, Mm -hmm. lost it all and couldn't cover the bets.
2: That's it. And then both companies went down the tubes.
5: Right. I mean, they were so interlinked by the end, right? They were supposed to be entirely separate companies. They were clearly not. And the background music to all of this, like the soundtrack of this story is the rise and spectacular fall of crypto in general, right? Like if you go back to when and how Sam bankman fried started the first companies called Alameda Research, Mm -hmm. when they started that company – Bitcoin, the, the sort of marquee cryptocurrency, was at like $4,500 a coin. Right. By the time they launched FTX, which was the proper sort of more public-facing investment uh, exchange, Bitcoin was up to like $13,000, $14,000 a coin but was just about to shoot straight up. Yeah. Like that, that's when the charts of Bitcoin were everywhere and these numbers were just coming crazier, crazier, crazier. It went to $80,000 a coin. And then when it started to fall, everything went sideways and everything in this whole industry went sideways, right? Like in a lot of ways, I'm reminded of – you remember Bernie Madoff, the the Ponzi scheme guy. He didn't get caught out because one of his clients caught him out. He got caught out because he got caught up in the 2008 financial crisis When when the water of a tide that big surges out you get exposed. You, you see who's not wearing underwear. And in this case, there was a bunch of people that were caught out. Uh, and, and so as things really started to go sideways in the crypto market, all of these cracks started to appear. And FTX and Alameda were, were two of the biggest.
2: But we're in the multiples of billions with the Multiple. FTX story as well. So
5: how much money are we talking about here? And where exactly did it go? Okay. So there were monies, there were funds that were in FTX that were siphoned off and put into Alameda Research in ways that were, let's call them untoward at best, mm-hmm. that have just gone poof into the night. Mm-hmm. And we don't, that's $8 billion mm-hmm. of investor money that just went to Alameda, which it shouldn't have, that Sam Bankman-Fried had said all along, no, 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 these two companies are totally separate. But it turns out there was like basic programming language, like code that allowed those two companies to move money back and forth. There was this one fund of eight bil- a loan of $8 billion from FTX to Alameda that was on the books. <laughs> this is an actual quote, Brent. What the, the title for that flow of money was called our Korean friend's account, not making it up so that 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 hid the fact of where it came. Right. That this is what prosecutors say shows that that there was ill intent here. Uh, and they've been able to cost some of that money back, but they don't know. And, and part of this trial is going to be trying to figure out exactly who's responsible. Where did some of this still missing money go uh, and the, the fact of the matter is we, we're probably not going to know. It seems like in his defense
2: Sam Bankman Fried's lawyers are saying that he was in over his head he was a math nerd he was a kind of lovable guy who just didn't know what he was doing wasn't able to manage wasn't able to fly the plane that they were building at the same time it was in flight. Yeah. But, but what, you know a lot of this trial is going to focus on Sam he's obviously on trial but it's going to focus on who he was and how he ran Things. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about him?
5: Well, he is a math nerd, and like if you've ever seen a picture of this guy, you probably have a pretty accurate picture of of the character that he played in this drama. Whether that's really him or not is frankly anybody's guess Mm -hmm. but he has this like shock of of unwieldy long sort of high hair he wears like cargo shorts to important meetings with like former presidents and you know sort of foundational Wall Street money and he presented himself as somebody who was you know always just sort of more interested in playing video games man I'm just doing this on the side he pushed out into the world this idea of uh, ethical altruism which was like this idea that he had about how to to affect change in the world world and, and make the world a better place and that that maybe crypto and these exchanges and all of this vast sums of money that were sloshing around might be able to help do that. And then like part of this drama is that they all lived in like Alameda Research, the, the original company, bought a bunch of villas basically mm-hmm. in the Bahamas and they all went and lived there. And they all lived there together and they've been kind of described as like somewhere between like a frat house and like a <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons game. You know, like think about the vast, vast, incredible sums of money yeah. that we're sloshing around mm-hmm. here. It, it is – it's the kind of money that – I I can't imagine anybody who's listening to this – has even come close to that kind. Of, like it is staggering sums of money.
2: But some of those people playing video games are presumably executives now that will be testifying against him in this oh, trial. Yeah. So what, what will that right. mean for, for this case?
5: So the, the main one there you're talking about is a woman named Caroline Ellison. She was uh, one of the earliest people involved in Alameda. She stayed and stayed on as CEO of Alameda Research when Sam Bankman-Fried left to go found this FTX futures exchange. Uh, she's already pleaded guilty. She has confessed. She's like, listen, th- this was a scam. There's several other sort of key lieutenants that have turned mm-hmm. and said, A, it was a scam, and B, he was running the scam. Sam Bankman-Fried was, was in charge here. This is not the first instance of bad PR for crypto, but this is a big one, Peter. Oh, no. what, what sort of impact do you think this is going to have on the industry going forward? Well, you can't talk about crypto or Bitcoin without sort of getting in at – the the idea behind it is this idea of blockchain mm-hmm. and this idea that, you know, sort of multiple ledgers spread out around the world to, to give more transparency. And I know this isn't a story about great transparency, but the idea, the evangelists of crypto and of blockchain believe that it can change the world of finance and of uh, international payments and of international shipping for the better, And they still believe that. What this story and others, as you say, that have, have poked holes in the, the PR around crypto and around blockchain, I think everybody's now waiting to see. Let's let the dust settle. Let's figure out what actually happened here. Because as I say, this is really a simple story, right? If you believe the prosecutors, this doesn't really have anything to do with blockchain or Bitcoin. It was, it was somebody doing things they weren't allowed or shouldn't have been allowed to do
2: more oversight and more transparency might be a couple of the the repercussions of the trial. But what will justice look like to FTX investors at this point?
5: You know, I I don't know that that there will be a a glowing picture of justice at the end of this where everyone can sort of hold hands and say, you know, we got the bad guy and everybody came out good. Money was lost and money was lost in a way that I don't know that we're ever going to get it back. It will be less about getting the justice for the people who lost something than making sure that something like this doesn't happen in the next one. And I think that's as close to justice as you're probably going to get. Peter Armstrong, thanks for being with us. You bet. It's great to see you. Peter Armstrong
2: is senior business reporter for CBC News. Still to come, how Truro, Nova Scotia found success recruiting family doctors.
4: It's no surprise and no secret that we're short physicians everywhere. Here are
2: some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country is at war after a surprise attack from Palestinian fighters in Gaza. Hamas launched several rounds of rockets into Israel, and then dozens of fighters entered Israel from Gaza. The Israeli military says dozens of fighter jets are carrying out airstrikes in Gaza, and that it has mobilized reservists. It's not yet clear how many people have been injured or killed.
1: And... When it comes to remembering the victims, we've done a lot. But when it comes to remembering the murderers, we've done very little.
2: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the government is reviewing the Duchenne Commission report and that it's considering making more of it public. The report, done in the 80s, investigated alleged Nazi war criminals in Canada. Part of the report containing allegations against specific individuals has never been made public. Canada's record on former Nazi fighters has been under scrutiny since a veteran who fought with a Nazi unit was mistakenly honored in the House of Commons two weeks ago. This week, the Governor-General apologized for the Order of Canada, having been given to a former Chancellor of the University of Alberta who fought in the same unit.
6: So for sort of like a multi-course meal for Thanksgiving, I would recommend starting with our caramelized pear and sheep's milk cheese mini tart.
2: Hate to break it to you. It's a bit late to start planning the menu for Thanksgiving, but if you're in a pinch, Cassie Vogel might have a solution.
6: There's like the harvest dinner rolls, the, I mean, the big showstoppers like Rack of Lamb. We have this victory point punch that is a batch punch that you could make for a really big crowd.
2: Cassie is the VP of publicity for Ulysses Press in the US. She's also one of the masterminds behind one of its most unusual new cookbooks.
6: So the very first recipe after is in our game night section, night spelled with a K as a reference to um, some of the night cards that are development cards in the Catan board game.
2: Just in case you didn't catch it, the cookbook is Settlers of Catan themed, as in the popular board game. And yes, I said Catan, not Catan. Turns out the Catan heads have been saying it wrong.
6: It, as I understand it, intends to be Catan. It's a German game, so if you kind of think about that pronunciation, it can also help.
2: And Cassie would know because she's a big fan, or as she would put it.
6: A Catanian, as fans of the game, are called in the Catan universe. I have been playing the game for a very long time. Big, big, big fan.
2: A cookbook might not seem like an obvious spinoff for Settlers of Catan, but the game actually does have a bit of a Thanksgiving vibe.
6: Catan is all about bringing people together. That's what Thanksgiving is about too. And it has this kind of fantasy tavern feel.
2: That said, food isn't actually a big part of Settlers of Catan. Though, to be fair, sheep and wheat are pretty central to the plot.
6: Cities and settlements are how you win the game. They're these little wooden pieces that are roads and houses.
2: And hey, for foodies like Cassie, every board game is at least a little bit about food.
6: I mean, I've played so many times and have made plenty of jokes about wanting some sort of like tasty kebab when uh, when, when trading with the wool cards because they have those cute little lambs on them. But again, because I am so food driven, that's where my mind goes. Um, I don't know if everybody else has that initial reaction.
2: Who doesn't love a tasty kebab? And if you're also a fan of puns, all the merrier
6: um some of my favorites let me see the diced caprese salad reference to dice because they're in the game um we've got the library galette which is a berry galette but a reference to the library card that can be found in the game we also have overnight with a k oats
2: Trying a new recipe for the first time can be daunting. Thankfully, the Catan team didn't set the bar for entry too high.
6: You do not have to raise your own sheep. Make your own cheese. We only have one recipe, the Fireside Banana Boats. that if you did have an open flame or were camping would be a fun option. But obviously, no fire required.
2: Cassie Vogel is the VP publisher at Ulysses Press. Keep an eye out for her recipes on the menu next time you're at a board game cafe. Still to come on day six, tenant activism is turning into a movement across the country. How rent strikes are changing the balance of power for the rental class. You know what? We're going to also not do our
1: side of this, which is paying rent. I'm Brent Bambury.
0: The data did show that 12% of Canadians reported that they did not have access to a primary health care provider.
2: 12%, that's more than 3.5 million people in Canada without access to a family doctor or primary health care provider. That's according to the Canadian Institute of Health Information. But this week in Truro, Nova Scotia, some signs of good news ahead. A recently launched campaign to recruit international doctors to the region has produced a big response. Dr. Justin Blauentrad is a practicing physician in Truro. He's also part of the Nova Scotia Health Authority's recruitment and retention effort. Justin, good morning. Welcome to Day 6.
4: Hi, good morning, Brad. Thanks for having me.
2: It looks like you got a pretty good response to this, this drive to bring foreign doctors to so, Tororo, you got almost 200 responses. Was that more than you expected? Yeah, I
4: think the number was, yeah, I think 199. So just short of 200 potential um, physicians that uh, showed interest in the campaign. I think initially nobody really knew uh, the full potential. Uh, and I think we were all very pleasantly surprised with the reception that, it, that the campaign had.
2: Well, there were a lot of people across the country right now wondering, what did you do? Who did you target? How did you reach them? How did you manage to get nearly 200 people interested?
4: As a physician myself, uh, you know, we're in a small kind of semi-rural community. So I personally am a co-chair of our local recruitment and retention committee. So I share kind of the chair duties with David Phillips, who is CEO of our local uh, Tro Colchester Partnership for Economic Prosperity. I can't take full credit for this, if arguably any. Um, this was David's, you know, creativity and and showing some innovation. Right. Uh, essentially, what we came up with was some promotional marketing material locally, um, which involved uh, myself and a few other local physicians over the years. Uh, have we've put together some testimonial videos, and we were able to package that and collaborate with. Uh, Nova Scotia Health, more than medicine, social media platform, and the keyword word we've been using is piggyback mm-hmm. uh, off of that, and uh, through social media directly targeting uh, UK physicians. So, what was said on
2: social media? What was put out there that would entice these physicians to show an interest in coming to
5: Truro? Yeah,
4: I think our goal and, and objective was to demonstrate our area and our region um, within the province, just to highlight the. Amazing! I'm going to use the word amazing. Work-life balance that we have here. Um, you know, we're all working hard, but outside of work, the opportunities that we have uh, to help balance that work-life um, lifestyle that is so important, uh, and and to highlight being close to Halifax and the the larger urban area, we're 40 minutes from uh, the international airport as well. And just to highlight again, how great a work-life balance we can have here and and provide and and that opportunity for a physician from from far away. So you do have
2: some work-life balance there, but you also have some of the issues that any small community in the country has right now when it comes to healthcare. Tell me about the needs of the people in Truro. Can you give us some examples of how people are struggling to get the medical attention that they need?
4: Yeah, I don't think Truro is unique and in, in our Colchester area is unique in that situation. We're certainly feeling the effects. You know, locally, we still have about 12% of our population without an identified primary care provider, whether that's a physician or a nurse practitioner. Right. Um, our provincial government has been creative in the last few years and encouraging our, our pharmacy colleagues and, and other allied health Uh, workers to practice to their full scope but you know as good as that may be in the short term it's still a big gap that we have to close to allow patients to have that access when they need it to timely primary care to preventative care and we're certainly seeing the effects elsewhere across the country. same here you know our er wait times our lengthy hospital stays because disease burden is just that much more significant, or disposition, and trying to get patients out of hospital is more uh, challenging when they don't have proper follow-up uh, established. Mm. So, so getting doctors from, in this case, from the UK
2: to move to Truro would cover some of that shortfall and make a big difference in the quality
4: of care. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, we've got a number of physicians who have stepped up that are, you know, sacrificing weekends, giving up uh, vacation days, picking up extra shifts and emerge in the hospital, you know, and and those are good people and they're working very hard, but we do our best to keep up the morale, but you can see it, it does weigh heavy on everybody. And so, yeah, welcoming physicians, from the UK, um, would certainly go a long way to filling those gaps. Um, and I would look forward to, to having more colleagues here to help share that load, um, and support each other. Justin, have you seen the movie, The Grand Seduction? (laughs) Yes, that is a, that's a great movie, especially relevant to, to our recruitment efforts.
2: Have you thought about doing any of the things that those Newfoundlanders did to entice a doctor to their community? Uh,
4: i would I would say we won't go as far as the top the to phone lines um <laughs> but I think it does bring to light you know that it takes a community and it takes the effort of of a community's individual strength to come together uh collaboratively right. um, to bring in even just one physician you know there's so many unspoken heroes involved in the process uh, and community members that volunteer their time for site visits uh but that movie is. Very spot on uh, and one that we often reference and and chuckle about.
2: Does anybody in Truro play cricket?
4: We may all have to um, trade in our our skates and skis um, (laughs) for some off-season training, yes.
2: You have lots of doctors now who have expressed interest, who, who may be ready to move. How long will it be before one of them is practicing there?
4: Yeah. And so that's a question, you know, you can't put a a finite answer on that. Recruitment is always very fluid. um, And there are lots of components involved. Uh, You know, it can take anywhere from 12 to 18 to 24 months for this campaign to to come to full fruition. But even if we're able to manage um, hiring half of the doctors that so far have gone through part of that process, our current patient wait list would be eliminated. Um, And to be able to do that, I mean, that's that's priceless.
2: What about for people in other regions and other provinces, small towns, medium-sized cities across the country who are, might be looking at what you're doing now because they're they're having a doctor shortage? What would you say to them about international recruitment?
4: Yeah, I think it's important to identify what your area has to offer. You know, every community and every region across the country is unique um, and has something to be proud of and, and to display. And, you know, it, it takes the right community and the right fit for a physician. So, you know, it's a constant evolution uh, of innovation and getting creative and not being afraid to take a bold approach and and try something new. You might fall flat on your face, um, but in this instance, like I said, we were very surprised. um, And I think there's a lot of takeaways from this to just keep enhancing the next campaign and, and keep promoting our efforts. Dr. Justin Blawendrot,
2: thank you very much for being with us. And congratulations.
4: Thanks. My pleasure. Like I said, we'll, we'll find out uh, in due time uh, the success of this and, and our fingers are crossed and we remain hopeful. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brent. It was a pleasure to be part of your program this morning. Dr. Justin
2: Blauendrott is a practicing physician in Truro and part of the Nova Scotia Health Authority's recruitment and retention efforts.
0: taking action. More than 100 residents at two apartments in the city's northwest are joining an ongoing rent strike.
2: Hundreds of tenants are on a rent strike in Toronto, accusing their landlords of letting their buildings deteriorate while increasing rent those tenants are withholding their monthly payments in protest. Meanwhile, in Montreal, a growing number of tenants are also threatening to suspend rent payment over Quebec's Bill 31. If that bill becomes law, it will allow landlords to stop tenants from transferring their leases, something that tenant advocates say would push rent prices even higher.
0: We're demanding some action from the housing minister and from the government themselves. And if 5,000
4: tenants were able to go on strike, that would demand a response from the government. There would be no way around it.
2: Tenants across the country are now organizing in ways similar to the labor movement. And although rent strikes are not new, they're picking up steam in recent years. Ricardo Tranjan is a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of the book, The Tenant Class. Ricardo, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Why is this
1: happening now what 's behind tenants organizing
2: and and rent striking
1: Well, tenant organizing is seen in throughout Canadian history. There are some ebbs and flows, so sometimes we see more of it, sometimes we see a little bit less of it and I think right now we are in one of those periods where we 're seeing lots of it. And for a number of different reasons, rent is out of control, It's skyrocketing, and folks are experiencing a lot of housing insecurity. Rent controls are becoming weaker and weaker, putting... Folks in a more vulnerable situation, but then there's also an internal logic within the movements as 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 they do more actions they 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 gain experience, they share those experiences, and they feel a little bit more capable of doing more, and so that there's the organic growth of it as well.
2: The language strike comes from the labor movement. How are rent strikes similar? to labor strikes? And how are they different?
1: They are similar in many ways. The basic idea is that landlords have assets from which they derive revenues. The tenants cut the flow of the revenues, trying to force the landlord to come to the table and to negotiate. The most common demands are either something related to repairs in in, in the building or to rent increases or to potential eviction of one or more of the tenants. The same is with labor, right? Labor usually also stops working so that, you know, revenue flows to the boss stops and that catches the attention of the boss and that forces a negotiation, usually around wages and labor conditions. In a unionized workplace, uh, the boss has the obligation to come to the table and negotiate with workers. And there's a whole process that is in place and rules for how that's going to happen and what's the rights and responsibilities on both sides. With the question of rent, what happens is that tenants do not have the right to collective bargaining, which that means that they have the right to form an association, but the landlord is not obliged to sit down and negotiate with them.
2: Are there any examples of tenants organizing and targeting the investors in the company that owns their units or owns their building. And, and have, has that been successful?
1: Yes, there are other examples. We have had a um, rent strike in Hamilton where it was a large redevelopment and it was a real estate investment trust that had just bought these apartment buildings and they were pushing rent increases that were quite aggressive and the rent tenants organized and pushed back. In the end, the tenants didn't manage to get the landlord to drop the rent increase, but you managed to get the landlords to do some of the very important repairs that they were asking for. In Toronto, in Parkdale, we also had a, a rent Strike there where the tenants managed to get the landlord to drop the above guideline rent increase. We also have seen other types of tenant actions pushing back on on the evictions or on evictions. And we have seen them recently in Vancouver, here in Ottawa, where I'm speaking from today. And also in in the Atlantic, also there's some organizing going on.
2: There are going to be people who say, if you signed a lease, that is a contract to pay a certain amount of rent on a certain date, and you should be legally obliged to do that. What would you say to that?
1: From the perspective of organized tenants and striking tenants, they're not saying no to paying the amount of rent that has been agreed on. What they are doing is they're withholding rent for a period of time in order to make demands on the landlord. For example, keeping the building in a good state of repair. Right now, one of the buildings that just went on a strike in Toronto, the building it is such in a bad state that post workers, don't go into the building because they think it's not safe for them, because there's so many infestations of bed bugs, of cockroaches, and of mice. So that is a case where that contract is obviously not being upheld on the side of the landlord. And the tenants are saying, you know what, we're going to also not do our side of this, which is paying rent until you get on top of fixing this building.
2: Tenants can organize, but landlords can organize too. Are there any instances of landlords taking on some of the tenants who are trying to organize against them? And what what kinds of, of, of measures are they taking against those tenants?
1: Landlords, first and foremost, they refuse to talk to organized tenants. They prefer to talk to one-to-one with tenants. And that's a way of not recognizing the tenant union, not recognizing the right of tenants to any form of collective bargaining. We also see the eviction notices that are sent to, to tenants right at the beginning of a strike. We also see now um, in, in Quebec, there's one example where landlords are talking about a registry, somewhere where you would have all the blacklisted tenants and then any landlord before uh, signing a lease with a tenant would go and check to see if this person is in that list. And if so... the likely not rent to them. In Toronto, we also seen with the rent strikes some some threats to report the tenants that fall into arrears to organizations that keep records of their credit and as a way to damage um, their credit history and to make it more difficult for them in the future to take loans or to have access to a line of credit or to even rent an apartment as well. What I hope is that at some point we have people in government, especially on the judicial side of government looking at these things very closely because in canada we do have a charter of rights that protects people's basic freedoms freedom of association freedom of political participation and at some point those freedoms are being infringed upon if you look a little bit at the history of the labor movement the organizers were often singled out and intimidated or fired the labor movement continued to grow despite the intimidation and the sacrifices at the personal level And slowly managed to get more recognition. Now it is no secret that a unionized job is a much better job.
2: The movement that you're describing today, it it seems like it's changing the whole idea of what a rental contract is because it used to be or it has been that a rental contract is something that's understood as an individual deal made between a person and their landlord. How are strikes and
1: tenant actions changing that understanding? I think the tenant movement and the strikes are repoliticizing the housing question in Canada. In Canada, we spend too much time talking about the supply and demand and measures that can bring us to some sort of optimal balance. It's a, it's a kind of a technical debate and and that assumes that there's a technical solution, some sort of win-win policy solution that could make all of this go away. Whereas I think, in fact, what we have is two classes with opposing interests. On the one side, we have developers and landlords who are trying to maximize the returns on investment. The other side, we have tenants and we have everyday, you know, working families who are trying not to pay too much on housing, who are trying to be financially secure. Those are two classes with opposing interests, and it's only natural that we're going to have a political struggle between them. Um, and I think that perspective that tenants are bring, organized tenants are bring about this repoliticization. It's positive because we need to have a grown up conversation about housing in this country. We need to stop pertain that this is just a big policy puzzle that we can solve by putting like smart people around the table and coming up with good ideas. Ricardo Trangin, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Ricardo Trangin is a senior
2: researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the author of The Tenant Class. Still to come on day six, a new graphic novel on the early days of the movement that would galvanize the country and prompt Pierre Trudeau to invoke the War Measures Act. Chris Oliveros on Are You Willing to Die
0: for the Cause? Very little of it was reported. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap.
5: I mean, I knew you had a show. I just I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be
1: cripplingly, poignantly depressing.
4: The Wiretap Archives. Available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day 6.
4: I do not think that formal introductions are necessary. Poirot. Hercule Poirot. There are those who have called me the greatest detective of all time. A
0: description with which I find it.
4: Difficult to quarrel.
2: No quarrel here, Monsieur Poirot. If not the greatest of all time, Inspector Poirot is at least proving to be timeless, just like the iconic Miss Marple, both of them fictional creations of Mystery Master Agatha Christie.
1: Nothing gets past you, Miss Marple, does it? Hardly ever, young man.
2: Even though some of Agatha Christie's stories are a century old, they are still inspiring modern adaptations like September's Poirot blockbuster, A Haunting in Venice.
0: Detective Poirot, we are invited to a seance.
2: There have been impossible murders. One of you is the killer.
3: My money's on the housekeeper.
2: And while the crimes in Christie's whodunnits can be grisly, the plot patterns and intimate settings make her novels feel familiar and comfortable. Inspired by Christie, Contemporary mystery writers put this comfy feeling at the heart of their stories, creating a whole genre known as the cozy mystery. For decades, the assumption was that cozy mysteries mainly appealed to readers of a certain age. But lately, the audience for cozies is expanding.
3: I grew up reading Agatha Christie and watching Jessica Fletcher with my mom and And I think for a lot of readers just like me, we wanted to keep reading these little mysteries, but maybe with people that more reflected our age and our demographic.
2: Kate Lansing is the author of Till Death Do Us Port, the latest in her Colorado wine series of cozy mysteries. And since Thanksgiving is the official kickoff to tea blanket and book season, we asked Kate to tell us why we should all consider cuddling up with a cozy
3: so when you start thinking about cozy mysteries it almost seems like a contradiction right because murder and cozy how do those go hand in hand but you know cozy mysteries they are this sweet subset of the mystery genre sort of like a hallmark holiday movie of mysteries there's something called a hook or a niche in each one so you have your culinary cozies where maybe the protagonist is a restaurant owner or you know in my case it's a winery owner or maybe you have a bed and breakfast one or there's even an apron shop you know <laughs> and like there's everything you could possibly think of there is a hook for it and it's and that's very cool cozy readers they like the rules of the genre to be adhered to and there are many of them when well, you have the plucky amateur sleuth You've got the small town feel or the sense of community, not getting too heavy, not getting too dark, no swear words. If you have to use a swear word, it's like one or maybe two. There's always an animal sidekick of some type. It can be a dog, it's very often a cat. You know, I've seen, I think there's been birds, You know, there's lizards, there's really anything. A sense of justice is another rule. So the killer gets apprehended at the end and justice is served and there is that happily ever after. And then the, the puzzle of the who done it is a big one too. Who did it? Who do I think did it? Who's the culprit? And I think that cozy readers love to try and piece it together along with or even better before the, the main character. I think the traditional reader of cozy mysteries tends to be a little bit of an older demographic and maybe just into knitting, into cats, and and a little quieter and into the puzzles. But I have noticed a lot more millennials getting into this genre. I think sometimes the world can be a very chaotic place, and I know especially a few years ago, a lot of people started reading cozies because it made them cozy, but then they could see themselves maybe in these characters that then got the justice, got the happy ever after. But I do think that the genre is becoming more inclusive, more diverse, and they do include very relevant topics that matter to the younger generation. There's even a new sub-genre called "cozies" right now for queer cozies, which I think is just awesome. It's nice to see um, this breath of fresh air coming into the genre and opening it up for, for everybody. How to dip your toe into Cozy Mysteries if you're interested. You know, you could always go by hook. Are you interested in learning about winemaking? Are you interested in learning about Filipino cuisine? Are you interested in learning about board games or vinyl records? There's also some authors that are great to start with. If you want to go classic, you can start with Agatha Christie, of course. But if you want to start with one of these more modern ones, there's a whole bunch out there. There's Bored to Death by C.J. Connor is one of the quosies. Vinyl Resting Place by Olivia Black. That has the, my favorite <laughs> funny title. Arsenic and Adobo is a huge one. That's the Filipino cooking one by um, Mia Manansala. Those are a few that come to mind. One of the cool things about cozies is there can be upwards of like 30 books in a series. And so sometimes you find one and find a character you like and you can just keep following them through. If you're gonna curl up with a cozy mystery, I highly recommend doing so in your coziest reading nook Get yourself a blanket or a throw or a scarf is totally acceptable. Something warm to drink, tea, coffee, maybe cider. Maybe have your your own furry companion nestled on your feet and just settle in and open the book and just sit back and enjoy.
2: Kate Lansing is the author of the Colorado Wine Mystery Series.
5: I still go back to the choice that you have to make in the kind of society that you live in. Well, there's a
4: lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of uh, of
2: a soldier. At any cost?
5: At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Just watch me.
2: When you think of the October crisis, that exchange probably comes to mind. On October 13, 1970, Canadian troops were in the streets of Ottawa, and CBC reporter Tim Ralph approached Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to ask about it. Days earlier, British diplomat James Cross was kidnapped in Montreal. That was followed by the kidnapping of Quebec Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte. They were taken by the Front de Libération du Québec, the FLQ. On October 16th, the federal government invoked the War Measures Act. A day later, Pierre Laporte was found dead. For many Canadians, this was their first encounter with the FLQ, but its roots go back much earlier. And those earlier years are the focus of a new graphic novel, Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? It's written and illustrated by Chris Oliveros, the founder of Drawning Quarterly. Chris, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good
0: morning, Brent. Thanks a lot for having me.
2: It's been a while since the FLQ was a political force in Quebec, and the October crisis took place 53 years ago. So what made you decide to write about these early attempts to form the FLQ?
0: Well, I first heard about the FLQ when I was in high school, and we saw in our Canadian history class, this is in Montreal or a suburb of Montreal, and we saw this documentary uh, on the FLQ. and so. Maybe 30 or 35 years later, I had an idea to do a book about it. Mm-hmm. But when I started doing my research, I was going to, in fact, do it on the October crisis. But then I was kind of flabbergasted, but I was learning about what happened before, like basically the prelude to the October crisis.
2: Well, there's a lot that I didn't know either that, that you include in this book, and and I want to get to some of that. But let's just talk about the framing device that you use in this. Because it's it's quite interesting. This is a graphic novel. You tell the story based on imaginary transcripts from a, a non-existent CBC right. documentary about the October crisis that in your narrative was shelved. So where did that idea come from that you uncovered these transcripts?
0: Well, I had the idea of telling the story through essentially firsthand accounts just to give it sort of a, a more immediate um, outlook on what happened. But many of those firsthand accounts don't exist. And yet I'm still basing it in history. Like a lot of this is backed up with research and so on. And I thought, you know, there probably could have been a documentary in 1975 about this. And so that's what I went with. It turned out about a year later, I found out that there actually was a lost documentary (laughs) from the CBC on the October crisis.
2: Let's let's talk about the early days at the FLQ that you said left you flabbergasted because the early formation of, of this organization, 1963, extremely small to the extent that they had meetings in tiny basement apartments with babies sleeping in cribs nearby. So what was it about that element of it
0: that appealed to you? You know, none of this or very little of it was reported and that's what shocked me actually. Like everything that you just mentioned now this this first f l q cell being set up in this um working class neighborhood of Montreal in this, this basement apartment, none of that w- was reported in sixty years and essentially what had happened was that the the wife of George shooters, who's the founder she was interviewed for this magazine and she gave this extremely detailed account in nineteen sixty three of what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the crazy story. This is one thing that's not in my book. That account by uh, Jean Schutter's his wife, appeared on November 23rd, 1963. Now, if that date rings a bell, it's because it was the day after JFK was assassinated. So, essentially, no one paid attention <laughs> no one paid attention and, and then as a result all of this history was forgotten so, and that's a
2: transcript that actually you didn't invent that you used in the book it's one that came from your your research but right. what was what was Jen shooter's George shooter's wife's take on
0: what her husband was trying to do in 1963? You know, she was both um, alarmed, as one would be. You know, being a mother with with a baby and uh, a and a toddler mm-hmm. in a small apartment. I mean, he he literally was making Molotov cocktails in the kitchen next to the room where they were sleeping, wow. and then that later progressed to um, bombs. Like he had boxes of dynamite yeah. being stored in the kitchen. So, of course, she was she was very alarmed. Uh, but at the same time, she actually like helped him and she was, um, sometimes she was a lookout. And then in, in the end, he kind of turned on her. He uh, he, he basically, um, after the duress of being beaten by the police, and that was also well documented, he basically snitched on her and then she was arrested.
2: I can't imagine living in a basement apartment with explosives and children side by side. Can you explain where you got the title of the book? Are you willing to die for the cause?
0: Right. So the title of the book actually comes from the FLQ itself. And uh, and I have them to thank for it because essentially they had a recruitment drive to recruit new members. And this recruitment drive actually occurred, Of all, I'm not making this up, This is, again, this is like This is all based on research. This recruitment drive occurred in a well-known restaurant uh, in Montreal called Da Giovanni that was around for decades and decades. Mm -hmm. So they would summon these potential recruits to this restaurant and they would give them the survey to fill out with 10 questions. And some of the questions were, do you have access to a secret hideout? Uh, Do you have any weapons? And the last question was, are you willing to die for the cause? And if they answered yes to all those questions, they were usually given a call back.
2: My goodness! And and while this was going on, the group continues their bombing campaigns, but they were bungled. Innocent people were killed in these campaigns. The early leaders had mishaps, and then the later leaders had mishaps. Why was the FLQ so inept?
0: You know, that's the thing. I I, I wanted to be careful. Like I, I didn't want to sort of. Um, I mean, it's hard not to make them look bumbling, but the, the point is, is that this is sort of what anyone should come to expect when you have a group of terribly inexperienced people, most of them teenagers coming together to plant bombs in mailboxes. Yeah. And this happened with, with other revolutionary movements throughout the world, including the United States. I mean, you'd have, this, was like, this happened everywhere. Um, it was just part of the times.
2: Chris, you just said you wanted to be careful about how you portrayed them, but you acknowledge that they are inept. Why Why are you walking this line? What is it about the FLQ that makes this story important to tell in a way that's fair to the people that ended up killing people?
0: Yeah, I mean, I am being, I'm, I'm cautious for a couple of reasons. One, well, the first, first and foremost, I wanted to make sure that everything is well documented and there's a really like lengthy section of uh, footnotes at the back of the book. But the other thing is, is that I'm very keenly aware of my position. Although I've grown up in Quebec all my life and I spent most of my life here, I am an Anglophone here. And I'm very, so I'm I'm treading very carefully in what I say. And I also want to really draw attention to the fact that the paradox is that a lot of what the FLQ uh, was trying to do or was trying to change was justified. It was a terrible situation for francophones in Quebec at the end of uh, what was called the Great Darkness when Maurice Duplessis died mm-hmm. at the beginning of the Quiet Revolution. So, it, I mean, economically, the uh, uh, francophones were in a terrible shape. They were way behind their anglophone counterparts. There was uh, education-wise, they were the, uh, the doors were closed. And so, you know, groups like the FLQ recognize all of that. Mm-hmm. It's just that the means that they tried to go about making these these changes were absolutely reprehensible. You know, so that so that's the thing too. Like, I I don't want to just like stand back and say, haha, look at look at these guys. They were like what fools they were. I mean, you know, I'm trying to sort of carefully balance everything.
2: Chris, this is volume one of your work. What can we expect in volume two?
0: Well, in volume two, I will finally be tackling what I meant to do initially, which was doing a book on the October crisis of 1970.
2: Volume one of Chris Oliveros' book is Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? Chris, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, Brent. Chris Oliveros is the author of Are You Willing to Die for the Cause? It hits bookstores on Tuesday. Time weather Rift
6: from the headlines.
2: and here it is rift from the headlines our weekly quiz three rifts linked by one story in the news if you guess the story that links the rifts you can win a day six tote bag first here's a recap this is last week's clue That's I've with 11, the Dead Kennedys and Dog Bite, and Kelly Rowland with Commander. And Abigail Elms guessed the headline that we were looking for. Joe Biden's dog, Commander, bites a Secret Service agent for the 11th time. Congratulations, Abigail. Day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue.
1: Because we were in Paris. Yes, we were song. We.
2: Looking for this story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day six at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day six tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day 6
6: Time, weather at from the headlines. Ah! Ah!
2: that's our show for this week day six was produced by Lori allen annie bender mickey edwards pedro sanchez and yamri Tusfu Tedessa. our digital producer is paul hentia our senior producer is Gord westmacott and i'm brent bamber it's two days to indigenous people's day three days to the nhl season opening night and seven days till we meet again on day six
1: nothing gets past you miss does it hardly oh ever young man